Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on me. everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled where I've been my, telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of recovery in 2011. I tell my story there and I invite you to share your stories here. And normally I tell you I'm the host but today I am the guest. Because last week's guest, Erin, the uh, editor of the She Recovers blog, uh, convinced me to allow her to interview me this week. Erin uh, is not only a control freak and a lot of fun, uh, but she has a, uh, a past in uh, radio production. And uh, so the producer and her just couldn't help herself. So... <laughs> Uh, I, I wanted to see her in action uh, with her producer hat on and her host hat on, so I agreed to this, and um, we're going to have a, a great chat, a little continuation of the chat we had last week, just switching seats. The tables have turned. Erin, welcome back to the Bubble Hour. Hey, Jane. I should say welcome to you. Yes, welcome, welcome, Jane, to, to the me. Bubble Hour. <laughs> Thank you okay, for trusting uh, me with this. We're going to have a great time. It's going to be very fun. We are. I, I believe so. Um, and I, so I reserve the right to say um, I plead the fifth or I'm not, I'm sorry, that's out of the, whatever, I, you'll have to call my lawyer, I, whatever. I, I can't answer that. It's just far too personal. <laughs> I always tell my guests that, that they don't have to answer anything I ask them. They don't have to answer if they don't want to. However, I know you're not going to hurt me with any of your, with your questions. I know that um, there's nothing I won't say. So we're we're off to the races. So with that, I relinquish my host hat. I put it on your head, and I'm now well, a guest. I am so I am so grateful. So thank you. And now that I am firmly in control, which, as you said, is how I prefer my life to be, um, I wish that it was something I could attain. <laughs> but it's probably best that I that I don't and trust the universe to guide us. So um, one of the things that I I thought we could talk about and um, that I know that you have, have watched is um, Hannah Gadsby's Netflix phenomenon, Nanette. And when we were talking last week, you mentioned that you wanted to write a book about recovery, but you discovered that really you're more of a recovery storyteller than a recovery expert. And so your writing has gone in that direction as telling stories. Um, and so later that week, I watched Hannah's special on Netflix, and she is an Australian comedian. 
And her one hour stand up piece is funny, of course, she's a comedian, but it's also powerful and haunting in very unexpected ways. And there's so much in her one hour, um, and I don't want to spoil it for listeners, but for our conversation today, I thought we could talk about, uh, about storytelling. And I thought we could begin that conversation with talking about how Hannah talks about storytelling. So Hannah says that you learn from the part of the story that you focus on. And she says that you need to understand your story to see how you fit into the world. And for her, a lesbian from a small town in Tasmania, she knew early on that it was dangerous to be different. And it created a tension inside of her and filled her with shame. And she says, what I would have given to hear a story like mine, to feel less alone, to feel connected. I want my story heard because I believe we could build a better world if we can build it from all perspectives. Diversity is strength. Difference is a teacher. If you fear difference, you learn nothing. And then she goes on to say that laughter is not our medicine. Stories are our cure. And laughter is the honey that sweetens the bitter medicine. And then finally she says, there is nothing stronger than a broken woman who has rebuilt herself. And Jean, I just think that says everything. I think that is what we do at She Recovers, and it certainly is what you do here at the Bubble Hour and Unpickled, is to build connections with stories and allow women to rebuild themselves. But we make up our stories through words. And I have a wonderful woman that I work with, um, a, a life coach. I call her my teacher. And she tells me that words are our most powerful medicine. And we have to choose them carefully because they are, of course, how we're building our stories. So all of that gets to my first question for you, which is I want to talk with you and ask you about your thoughts on the word alcoholic because it is such a powerful word and it evokes powerful reactions. And I have two friends that I think give a a good snapshot on how this word impacts women. So both of these women are strong women in recovery Both of them had similar drinking histories, similar marriage histories, similar careers, similar bottoms. You might call it a high bottom, but they both think about the word alcoholic quite differently. So one friend says to me that the word alcoholic, the word itself, kept her drinking for five extra years. That the word, she she balked at the idea that that word applied to her in any way. She still to this day does. And it's sort of like Hannah says, that she did not see it as a healthy word. So it was not part of the story she wanted to focus on. And she says that the word itself made her feel terrible about myself and it hurt my heart. And then I have another friend who uses that word as motivation. And every day when she wakes up, the first thing she thinks is, I'm an alcoholic. And what am I going to do today to stay sober? So she uses that word as motivation. So both these women have powerful feelings, powerful relationships with that word, but they're totally different. And I would love to hear your your thoughts on your relationship with the word alcoholic and how that might have evolved and why you think that's so powerful. Okay, well, I have to tell you that I identify with both women that you mentioned. I can I can see both sides of that coin. I had that exact same experience that the idea of the word alcoholic as a label I saw it as a shameful label and I think society does and I think I absorbed that 
shame identity, um, which is also something, interestingly, that uh, Hannah Gadsby, Gadsby, Gadsby talks about in her uh, Netflix special. So um, she talks about having absorbed the, the shame and believed it as a core belief and then applied it to herself. And I, I think that's why a lot of us really resist that label. And we also are stuck with this um, <clears throat> old thinking that only alcoholics have to quit drinking, um, that you have to, like, that's the diagnosis. And then the cure is to quit drinking, which is true in some respects, but um, <clears throat> it's not the only way. I mean, we don't say you have to, you have to be a nicotine addict to quit smoking, um, but whatever that, so that, that old thinking, I think a lot of us are steeped in that. And so that makes us resist the idea of, of empowering ourselves by quitting because we think that in doing so we're, we're um, accepting a, a sort of shame based diagnosis that goes with it. On the flip side, um, I, what was powerful for me was when I did quit drinking, I experienced withdrawals for a few days. And that was when I really saw in practice that forget labels, forget, forget shame identities. This just was, this was a physical problem that was needed fixing. And that cemented for me that I had done the right thing because it really was concrete evidence that my body was addicted to alcohol. Whatever I told myself to the contrary, that was the truth. Um, and I understand too how it can be an empowering term because um, it, it allows you to say, this is, this is me and this is my choice every day. This is an empowered choice to, to be proactive about being strong and healthy. That being said, um, I also sort of think that alcohol, the word alcoholic um, as a label um, for a human being is kind of a, it's an, it's a meaningless word in terms of a medical diagnosis. I mean, it's not, it's not a medical term. It's a, it's a more of a vernacular term for people in recovery. So I only really use it now for when I'm talking to people in recovery that understand that I'm sort of speaking in the vernacular when I use that term, rather than if I'm talking to other people, um, I'll say I'm in recovery or I'm sober or I don't drink or I quit drinking, but I don't say I'm an alcoholic because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what that means. And I feel like it separates us instead of bringing us together. There was a really good movie a few years ago called the anonymous people. And if you go into some of our back issues of this show, we did um, interview uh, Greg Williams, the creator. And a big part of that documentary talks about the way that we speak about recovery and how language matters because it either puts a barrier between us and other people or it connects us. And so we have to be mindful of how we use that term. I really appreciate that, especially the part about the barriers and the connection versus connection. And I know that um, one of the things I, I love about She Recovers is that uh, their, you know, their premise is that we are all recovering from something. And so I'm certainly, you know, focused on um, on my journey with alcohol, but I have two dear friends who are both going through divorces right now. And what I've seen is that 
our stories of struggle and recovery um, overlap beautifully, even though those two women you know, aren't struggling with drinking, but they're struggling with recovering from uh, some pretty, you know, destructive relationships and, and coming out of that. And yet, interestingly, one of my, one of those girlfriends um, stayed in her marriage, which was quite broken, longer than she needed to because she didn't want to apply the word divorce to herself. She didn't want to say, I'm divorced, because she felt that that word implies brokenness and failure and that it didn't sufficiently capture her 20-year marriage, which was, of course, complex with ups and downs and two people who loved each other but just couldn't make it work. So here we would have these conversations where I would say to her, I just don't think I'm an alcoholic, and yet I have, <laughs> I have so many issues with alcohol. And she would say, well, I have so many issues with my marriage, but I don't want to get divorced because I don't want that to be the thing that that defines me. And, and so it was, we had many conversations around wishing that we could come up with better words. Um, and yet we're kind of left with, you know, insufficient words um, to tell our stories. And I've actually struggled with the word recovery too, because when you, even using that word is a, you know, can alarm folks who uh, see it as, you know, they kind of, they, they hear the word recovery and immediately think addiction. And then they're off to the races with whatever that brings to the mind and brings to their imagination. And um, I have two, you know, two friends who I've known for quite some time. And both of them, I would say, are very thoughtful, very educated people. And when I told them I was blogging for She Recovers, they were alarmed for me. <laughs> like, why would you, why would you do that? It sounds like you've been sick or you are sick. And and so I would like to even come up with a different word for recovery. Um, you know, I think of it as like an awakening or a remembering of things, but I can't fight all the battles. And so, you know, we're, we're folk, we are left with the words that we have. And I think it's kind of our responsibility as, as we get stronger to help, help as we become more comfortable with them is to help other women become more comfortable with them. I like the way that the Germans developed these really long words for things that are sort of long and specific, you know? So I don't speak German, but, you know, whereas we might say snow, you know, they might say like Gerstaffenfuben, which means like the fluffy snow or something. <laughs> because there's so many nuances that we need to capture to it. So I agree with you that there could be better words. I, I, I feel like, you know, I like recovery because I feel like I'm recovering my 12-year-old self, um, the person I buried. And so I want to, like, find her again and bring her, let her grow up unimpeded. So to me, recovery is like peeling back layers and getting back to, like, you know, who I am underneath it all. But you're right. It can sound different to other people. And um, I, I think language will evolve. I think it will get better. And as people become more informed in general, the more we talk, the more people are informed and the more they understand the nuances of what we mean with those words. So I think maybe you'll be the creator of a new word. Maybe we can hashtag something and get it started. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate what you said about the 12-year-old girl because I, um, my, father, I, my father had four daughters. And he has a theory that 11-year-old girls can run the world 
but there's something that happens when we turn 12 or get into those years where we lose ourselves. So it's, it's, it sounds exactly right to me that you're trying to recover your 12 year old self. Do you, do you actually have something that happened when you were 12? Can you pinpoint that? Or is that sort of that timeline where you or time in your life where you think things, things started to shift for you in a way that you forgot yourself? I, I guess I, I throw 12 out there because I just sort of think it's sort of the age before like our breasts develop and things. But honestly, I would say probably I could even go back farther. There's that um, to where before you're self-aware, you know, like kids, I've got grandkids right now that are, they're completely not self-aware. They're just doing what they're doing, but they don't worry about how it looks to other people. And at some point when we're little girls, we start to be aware that we're being noticed, not sexually at that age, hopefully anyway, but um, uh, judged, graded, compared, and we start to we start to play to that or watch how we're being received. So I want to get back to before that, to when I was just me. And I was really authentically me, which isn't to say we have to be uh, not giving an ass anymore. Like I, I sort of think that whole zero F given thing is, is not healthy. I'm not a huge fan of that because uh, I still think we have to be considerate and self-aware and we have to be true to ourselves first. And I feel like, you know, for me, certainly I started giving that up at a pretty young age. One of the things that we get as we move through those, through those adolescent years is um, we kind of get told which group we belong to. Right. So I have both my sons are in middle school and I can see this happening with them where they are being labeled and kind of placed in a box and uh, neither one of them is in the jock box. um, And neither what, neither one of them is in like the skater boy box. And so uh, it's painful to want them to be in a box and yet they, so desperately want to fit in that, you know, they're eager to get, to get into one with their people, with, with their friends and friendships have been part of uh, some painful, painful realities for me in the past few years, as I've moved deeper into recovery and, um, and really crave what we talked about last week, kind of that brutal honesty is a loss of friendships. It's been very painful to lose women that, you know, we saw each other through a lot of hardships. These were not drinking buddies. These were women who, you know, pulled me out of uh, postpartum depression and women who I brought meals to when their parents died. I mean, this was, these were deep friendships and and unraveling and sort of unpacking why these things, why, why the relationships uh, withered has been something I've spent quite a bit of time doing, but I have, I have wondered with you, but what have you seen happen in your friendships uh, with some, maybe some of your, your more established friendships before the sobriety gig got a hold of you? Okay. Well, it, to simplify it, I would say three things happen generally, but there's fluidity to them. So, um, so first of all, Some of my friends were there for me in a a really fierce way. They were my wingman kind of thing. So 
um, those were the early people I confided in and they were just fiercely there for me. They, they, um, sort of sheltered me. Like they went to parties with me, but they, um, made sure my drink was full of, you know, Diet Coke or whatever. And if anybody tried to offer me a drink, they were like, she's good. Or they would, if someone handed me a drink, they'd take it. Like they just quietly pour it into their glass or something. So I had both kind of friends and I'm so close to them to this day. And they're curious about my sobriety. Um, but they, for instance, I went to dinner. Um, Dixie is one of my dear, dear friends. I would love to have her on the show, even though she's sober because, or not sober, even though she's a normie, um, because her dad was an alcoholic. And, and so she grew up with a, a parent in, in uh, active 12 step. And so when I got sober, she said, okay, here's what you need to do, Jean. Like, you always take drinks with you when you go somewhere, and eventually your friends will learn what to keep in the fridge for you the same way they knew to have wine in the fridge for you. She gave me really good practical advice like that. So I went to her house for dinner last week, and sure enough, she had three or four non-alcoholic choices in the fridge for me. She'd gone to the store. She bought them. She chilled them. She she didn't just have a beverage for me. She had like a array of choices and they'll probably be there the next time I go because it's not what she drinks I mean she she doesn't want diet tonic water I'm the only weirdo in the world that drinks that I think so so there's friends like that that have my back and and um wine was served for the rest of the guests but she she had my back um so there's friends like that and that has deepened and strengthened our friendship I think there were not a lot, but a few people who felt rejected by my choice. And I think that that is because our friendship had literally degenerated to being drinking buddies. And even though we were confiding in ourselves, in each other and getting each other through a lot, it was all over a glass of wine. By quitting drinking, um, first of all, I hadn't been confiding in them that drinking was a struggle, or if I was, it was while we were drinking and um, uh, and they would say, you're fine. If you're an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. And so by when I quit drinking, perhaps that was received as criticism of themselves, a rejection of our relationship or something. And I think that's dumb. And they pull away because they didn't want to change and they didn't want me to change. And I made them uncomfortable. And maybe I didn't know how to bridge that gap because I wasn't sure what there was there there besides the drinking however um i split that category into into two there's some people for whom that was true there wasn't much else there and those friendships have sort of withered on the vine they there there wasn't much else there and so i've released them with gratitude but there's other ones that there was something more there and they went through a change and now, here's my word of encouragement to you, Erin, for the friendships you're mourning, you feel like you've lost. Um, the encouragement would be that what I've seen happen as time went on is that we still stayed in touch and we still went for coffee once in a while and it was awkward. And But over time, it's grown into something different and it's like a new friendship that's starting again because the commonalities were there and maybe maybe without me there filling their glass up all the time maybe their drinking has shifted to not be such a focus in their life and certainly it's no longer the focus of our relationship and something new can emerge so 
those are the three categories I drop them into. I love that. And I, I'm taking notes as you write and as you are talking and what I'm seeing in all three of those categories is that they became willing to change with you. So Dixie changed to accommodate you. Mm-hmm. And the second group of friends did not want to change to accommodate you. And that third group of friends eventually through time shifted, shifted kind of in a, in a more, um, in a slower way. So Dixie was sort of ready to, to change with you. And then the other, that third group sort of came around eventually. Yeah. And I think in all of those reflections, there should be a focus too, that it isn't just them that has to change or not. It's me that has to allow the friendship to change. Because if you're saying, no, 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 nothing needs to change. I'm still going to come to, you know, the, the bachelorette parties in Vegas. You guys all drink. I'm good. I'll just have water. Like, that's not realistic and that's not supporting your own self. So I had to be willing to trust that I could allow our friendship to change and grow too. And that I could maybe bring something more to the table. And um, so it's, it's like you both take a step towards the center or not. So would you actually counsel a woman to not go on the bachelorette trip to Las Vegas if she's sober and her friends are, or not? Well, that depends on the woman and it depends on the friends because I think you know in your gut if it's just going to be, you know, a hot mess and you're going to, you are going to be trying to keep up and feeling other than. I personally have chosen not to go to those things. I'm past the age of you know, those kinds of (laughs) parties. But I will give you an example. Another good friend of mine who has stayed a good friend for her 50th birthday party, she did this amazing trip to the mountains with all of her girlfriends to go dog sledding. And I opted out, even though I really wanted to go because it was about 10 women, none of whom I knew super well. They were all staying in a condo together. And... Um, and they all love their wine. And it, it wasn't, it, I, I didn't expect it was going to be, you know, like Mardi Gras or anything. But um, I just knew that I had a lot of social anxiety and I didn't feel like I could spend 48 hours with people I didn't know very well and the alcohol and the nowhere to go and blah, blah, blah. So I just said to my friend, like, I, I took her out for brunch instead and you know, took her a gift and just sort of did something different with her that was special because I just, my gut just told me it just wasn't a good place for me. I don't know. You just kind of have to read the situation. Um, Knowing where you are in your recovery journey and how strong you're feeling, because I had a similar situation as the one you've described in the mountains, except it was uh, a, a vacation to the Bahamas. And I was with my husband and three other couples that I loved, you know, and, um, but what happened was we got down there and it was, it was, uh, the first tropical storm they've ever had in like 20 years. Right. And it lasted the entire week. (laughs) And yeah. And it just became because clearly all of the activities that we had hoped to, you know, to take part in were off the table. It just became a week of, um, of drinking and when I got back from that, which I, I, I navigated that and, and was fine with it, 
But when I came back, it was one of my long stretches of sobriety that I had before I really had, I, before I found She Recovers and really had found a community. So I was all by myself in, in recovery. Um, and when I got back from that, it had just fed that voice of, you know, that voice, the, do you really have a problem? You know, look at all the fun they had. I mean, it, so while I kind of had gotten through the week fine a few months later, that was, you know, I, I was back to the couch again. So mm -hmm. um, I think knowing the circumstances as well as knowing yourself are probably really, you probably need to have a, a good feel for both of those things. I think so. And just you're back to the couch for you as a euphemism for sitting and drinking in the evenings. And, <laughs> and I, I think that's, that's an important caution is that even if you make it through something, you might make it through, but your recovery is so undermined that um, you're, you're weakened down the road or you, you, you know, the, it reverberates later. We're so conditioned to put everyone else first. And exactly. that is one of the first things that I think we learn to heal. I mean, once we take alcohol out of the equation is learning to start to put ourselves first. And I, I mean, that's a completely new thought for a lot of us is what do I want? What do I need? Is this good for me? Is this so many people are so many women in particular are, are stuck with that, but I have to go. It's my sister's, Get, or I have to go, it's my best friend's wedding, or I have, you know, and you don't have to do anything. You really don't. There's a, there's a way to, to make those decisions that, it, that can still honor yourself. And I think you're, when you have, what I have found is I have thought about the relationships that I've lost and, um, you know, what is working, what isn't working is a reliance on uh, on myself, right? So, and a belief in the fact that I am enough. My mom tells a story about how uh, when I was like four and I wanted my older sister, who's about two years older, to play with me and she wouldn't play with me, how I just said it, that's fine. I'll be my own best friend. Oh. <laughs> I love that story about me. I hope it's true. I think it is true. I think it is true because, you know, that's kind of what that belief in myself has been um, a huge part of my recovery. And once I kind of tapped into that more and more and believed in it, things have, things have gotten stronger and better. But the, the key to that is to know that you're enough, that you believe in yourself. You are enough. You have enough. You kind of don't owe the world anything. Um, and I know that you have written about that, that concept of being enough. And you've talked about that struggle to think that, um, that you are enough. And so I, I pulled a quote one of your, from this blog. It's called um, that you entitled enough. And you wrote, I remind myself that the enough of wine wasn't entirely imagined. Without it comes withdrawal. And that feels a lot like danger, sweats, anxiety, obsession, I truly dreaded the way it felt to not consume the right amount of alcohol. But this other enough, the way I feel about coffee and clothes and ice cream and savings and mechanical pencils, it comes from a different place. I've always wanted more, 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 and now something is starting to shift. And that shifting, I think, 
grounds you in recovery. And Brene Brown, who is one of, you know, one, another teacher of so many of us, talks about the culture of scarcity that we live in despite being in a, being in a society of seeming abundance. And I'm wondering how, how that has shifted for you, your definition of enough and, and how that has changed how you live your life by understanding that you don't need more. I think it's, it's because I feel safe now. I, I think that my discomfort, what I was trying to numb, was never feeling safe. Not safe from my inner critic, not safe from the criti- criticism of the world, not safe from rejection, not safe from being found out, you know, imposter syndrome, all of that. And um, sobriety and to some extent antidepressants have <laughs> quelled my anxiety to the point where I feel I know I'm safe in the world. And and so I am not always having to either comfort through purchasing things or um, uh, layer on security by having more of everything around me. And I don't know. I mean, my closet is overfilled and I am always looking at shoes. Um, I don't know if I will ever really um, understand the difference between just really enjoying fashion and enjoying um, that and uh, and when I'm buying something because I need to feel different. But I, it came on slowly, just this feeling of safety. I don't need that. I'm okay with what I have. I'm okay. I have enough. I'm safe. Yeah. There's so much that is happening slowly. And it frustrates me because I love to blow something up. You know, I love to like, you don't like something, quit it. You don't like a place, move. And the, the idea that I have had to, first of all, use the word accept, which is another word that I just fight with all the time that I should accept and surrender and wait for the things to happen has been a frustration. And yet, wow, like it, it works. But um, slow is not my favorite. <laughs> so, <and that's> <laughs> tells us, you know, I mean, we're, we're surrounded and we swim in the water of fast and more. Uh, so it's hard to to trust that um, one, you're enough, and that things will come that you need. That you know, it will, things will be provided. So I also think that comes a little bit from our culture of consumerism that we're always like we, we're taught to never be happy with where we're at. We've always got to be, you know, watching for the change of style or the change of, I don't know, thing, yeah. whatever the thing is. And so that takes away from our ability to just be where we're at. And so when we like when you say you want things to change quickly and not just accept where you are. There's a, there's a beauty in enjoying wherever you are along the path of, you know, I'm even, so even in, in terms of recovery, someone once said, I wish you a slow and enlightened recovery, which I thought was just a beautiful, brilliant thing because it was like, just enjoy, I, I quit trying to be fixed, quit trying to be perfect and just, just sit where you're at today and find the magic in that. It's your said and done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more and I, it is, but because it's this culture of consumerism and and more and fast, that is why what that is why recovery is so hard fought and it's so precious. And 
um, because it is not going to be reinforced in, in easy ways around us. So one, and it's actually a great way to kind of segue into something else I wanted to talk with you about because, you know, online, uh, things are, things are fast. Things are happening quickly and, uh, and online and certainly in, in the waters that we're swimming in, um, the messages we get are, the messages we get do not appeal to our uh, 11-year-old selves. You know, they appeal to, to the people that we grow into because of the messages that we receive and the culture that we're in. And yet, um, sober blogs were kind of one of the first places I found as an adult where people were talking honestly and they were sharing the real deal. And, um, you know, I had, I had a blog, and of course, you still keep unpickled, and Don Nickel, who started she recovers she had a blog called recovering dawn that she grew into she recovers and so sober blogs to me were um, absolutely you know an important step a foundation in my recovery but it feels like we're moving away from these brutal honest honesty uh, bloggers uh, confessional blogs and um, moving into more curated accounts and I, I, there was an article in the Washington Post a few months ago that talked about this, um, and they were talking about mommy blogs, but you could apply what they were talking about to sober blogs. And the author wrote um, that mommy blogs are beautiful and aspirational, and it's always miles away from what motherhood looks like for many of us, and miles away from what, from the, and miles from what the mommy internet looked like a decade ago. And mm-hmm. that the biggest stars of the mommy internet now are no longer confessional bloggers. They're curators of life, they're influencers, and these, they have sh- staged curated photos that don't show the messier part of life. And that is absolutely the case, um, I think, as I have tracked sober blogs and bloggers and influencers, what I see happening. And I, I, I wonder how, what, how you have seen that uh, transform over the past few years since you've been keeping unpickled. I, I absolutely have seen it, although I didn't really sort of quantify the change until I read that article, and I thought they nailed it perfectly. I think it comes from the advent of um, Pinterest and Instagram over the last decade. So when I started my blog, um, the traffic was much higher, but more importantly, reader engagement was much higher. But people were commenting. So if you go to some of those old posts, I mean, there's over a hundred comments on some of them because people were congregating there, talking amongst themselves. Now, those those old conversations are there for anyone to read, and it's a great archive of that. But it also looks back on a time where that's where people met and talked about things. I haven't changed my blog to that sort of more curated type of blog because I, there's a few reasons. One is that I haven't really monetized my blog. So if you, if you go to a monetized type of um, format where you're making a living blogging and and some people make quite a good living and some people make a modest living, it's work. I mean, it's not, it's not free money, but the way the business model of it works is that you get sponsors and they send you product and you showcase their product and you show where it fits in your life. And all of a sudden you're molding your life around a product or a delivery of something um, versus the reality of your life. And that's where that idea of being curated comes from. Um, And you're sort of 
setting up your pictures so that they'll look good on on Pinterest, and then you get a click from the Pinterest to your blog, and then your ad kicks you, you know, the ads you have on your blog will kick you back a penny or whatever for every click, and and it's all kind of feeds each other. And that's not what I'm there for, and um, so I don't I don't do it that way. For me, it's still it's not a confessional anymore, though it very much was at the beginning. Now I think of the way that I write my blog. It reminds me much more of when I was songwriting. In that, in writing a song, I used to, instead of just telling the story or telling the situation, I tried to find the kernel of truth and then write about that. Because if I just write a song that's like, my name is Jean and I have a mole on my cheek and my dog's name is Scout, there's not much to relate to there. But if I write, I'm a woman who's not, who's not sure that my insides match my outsides. And I cling to this pet for comfort because she doesn't care. Everybody understands that. So I try to do that to some extent when I write a blog post is that what's this kernel of truth? And how can I tell you about my day that's interesting, but that your takeaway and your identity is going to be, here's this, here's this kernel of truth that I found in my day today or in this lesson this week. And here's why it matters to all of us. And now go to the comments and tell me what you think about it. That's what my blog is about. Having said that, I've seen stats drop by 50% in the last year or in the last decade. And I've seen comment participation drop by probably, no kidding, oh, 75%. Um, because people just don't talk there anymore in that way. Now they're talking on Facebook. They're talking on Instagram. They're talking in private chat rooms differently than they were on the blog. So that has changed, but I still can see the traffic is coming. I see most of my traffic is coming from web searches. That tells me people still sit down at their computers every day and type, how do I get sober? I think I have a drinking problem. What do I do? What what do I do if uh, if I want to quit drinking and my spouse doesn't? They're still finding their way to blogs like mine and many other bloggers like me and them that's their first point of connection and then hopefully from there it leads them to the other things they can do I just wanted to say I, I do have a Facebook account and an Instagram account and for both Unpickled and the Bubble Hour and it's really important to me that I don't just have one of those um, apps that like whatever you put on one just goes on to all of them the same I use them all differently because I think they're all different tools and and should communicate different messages to different audiences. Yeah, it's hard because I am so glad I'm not uh, embarking on on this right now, uh, and that when I entered into the sober you know sober sphere, it was blogs because that, again back to stories. That's what I that's what I connected with were were those stories, uh, the confessional stories at the beginning and, and sort of that kernel of truth, like as you described, that it can kind of um, change into over many years. But the first thing that you need to hear is sort of a messy version of what's going on with you and, and know that that's going on with somebody else. And it's really hard if uh, to do that on Instagram. <laughs> you know, Instagram is not for messy stories. Instagram is is meant for uh, beautifully curated, filtered pictures. And even when 
I see folks try to, and there are a few that, that seem to work, but because you're telling your story, um, when you try to do that through pictures of yourself, it just comes across to me, it comes across as um, narcissistic. Now, I'm, this is totally my opinion, but that I have, I've had a hard time connecting with people uh, with sobriety voices on Instagram because it just feels like it's another picture of them when really that's, I don't want that. I want something deeper. Um, and I just don't think the platform allows for it. And yet, as you said, the blogging platform is, you know, it is seen, it seems to be, um, drying up. Uh, and that's, that's a shame because I, that's where I think, uh, you can really see that honest connection or you can find it, um, in a more, compelling fashion, you know, when you're, when you're writing your story with words, but I'm a lover of words. So maybe, (laughs) maybe it's just me that feels that way. I I caution people, um, especially people that are trying to um, reach an audience through Instagram. And now we have a sort of a whole new industry in recovery of coaches and writers and all kinds of things. But even if they're not, they're trying to help people, but they're creating a brand for themselves. And that's important, but boy, stay self-aware because if that's your only modality to reach people and it is all, um, you know, here's the flattering angle of me at the beach. Here's the flattering angle of me with my non-alcoholic mocktail. Here's the flattering angle of me in my um, shoe recovers t-shirt. You know, like you can, without realizing it, disconnect from yourself by doing that. You're trying to reach other people but you're, you know, you're polishing the outside and forgetting to work on the inside or not showing the inside. I feel like Instagram is a great place to show gratitude. I love a lot of the memes and the um, slogans and the graphic quotes on Instagram that are about gratitude and insight and um, quotes from brilliant minds and hopefully they're correctly attributed. Um, Instagram's great for that. But you're right. If all it is 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 selfies and and um, you know plump lips, I'm I'm not interested in that. I can I can find that anywhere. But the yeah, as you said, that's not what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I actually, you just you make me want to. I'm going to look at my last like ten Instagram posts and see. <laughs> <laughs> I did not look at I. I, I didn't check that for you because that's not at all what I've experienced on your on your Instagram account. Um, that is what that platform asks for. So of course we do it, um, but it's it's but just it's it harder. Is. Yes, exactly, for sure. Try to eat a balanced diet of social media. That's what I that's what I try and think of is like if you're spending too long on one thing and not the other, like try and spread the content around a little bit you know, eat your vegetables a little bit, like do some, do some good recovery, a thoughtfulness and not just sort of um, the, the outside stuff, which reminds me, and I wanted to, I wanted to mention this about the Hannah Gatsby piece that we were talking about, because she said, what I picked up from, from that was that she said something really great about telling a joke to tell a joke Wait, a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. A joke is just the beginning and the middle, you know? Like a, a man walks down the street, slips on a banana peel, 
a joke is when he's like, you know, in midair in a funny pose with funny expression on his face. Like that's the joke. The story is that he landed on his back and broke his neck and died. Like, you know, um, the story is the rest of it. And when we see all these um, things on Facebook that our drinking friends might post, all these stupid memes about, you know, wine makes life better or, you know, all this cutesy stuff, the, the handbags with the secret, secret wine pouch in it, or this bangle holds half a bottle of wine or whatever those stupid things are. They're so irritating. But the ones that are jokey, you know, they're irritating to people in recovery because it's only telling you the beginning and the middle. Like, you had a feeling and you numbed it. You felt bad and now you feel better. But the story is the end and we know the end, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what we're always telling people, like, think it through to the end. You know, yeah, you felt bad and you drink wine and you felt better and your life came unraveled. Or... You like drunk, exactly. drunk texted. <laughs> and, and, and you have to be sort of sober to think it through to the end. And one of the things that I miss about, one of the few things I miss about drinking are those moments where you don't think it through to the end. So I call it the hold my beer feeling, right? So <laughs> we've all, <laughs> I miss that feeling, Jean. Where, you know, you're at the, you're at the, the wedding reception and like the Michael Jackson song comes on and you're like, oh, that's right. It's on. And you go to the dance floor and you do your thing that you never, you know, in sobriety or in a more sober moment, you never would have, you know, presented that to your family and 300 of their closest friends. Um, but, but there's that. So many of those hold my beer moments have disastrous consequences. But I miss the feeling of, yes, I can dance or, yes, we should have crazy sex or, you know, yes, I can talk to this stranger, um, you know, and see where the conversation goes. So do you have, do you miss that feeling too? Is that something that you created in recovery, that, that just kind of moment of clarity and certainty and, but without the disastrous results? (laughs) Is it possible? It is. Um, I, I would argue that that wasn't alcohol that made that made you do those things. That's just a part of yourself that that you keep so locked away that it took alcohol to free it. But it wasn't the alcohol that made you do it. It's just a part of yourself that you don't let out of the box very often. Being sober allows you to be more mindful in what you choose, which part of yourself you're going to bring forward. So, and we all do this. We all sort of have, you know, we have our game face and we have our mom voice and we have our work personality and we have our girlfriend personality. And then we have that part of us that comes out when we're around our parents and our siblings and we're like, oh my God, why did I just do that? (laughs) How do these people push my buttons? And it's like, no, you just brought that part of yourself out. Uh, You just by rote went into it. And so by rote, I think we go into that sort of abandoned part of ourselves um, when we're in party mode. I'm pretty uptight and I keep things under lockdown. I would say if I was drinking, I, I like double locked the abandoned part of myself because I never wanted anyone to think I was drunk or know that I was drinking. So I, I really had less fun <laughs> than oh, most because wow. I was trying so hard not to show it. 
Um, so for me, I, I actually find that I am, I feel more free to be that way because I just know that, that I'm in full control of it, if that makes sense. And so my, my therapist like said, you know, quit trying to banish those parts of yourself that you don't like and don't trust and just invite them all to the party. It's like, I'm having a party and you're all invited to show up and my highest self is going to stay in control, but you're all welcome to consult with me so that the part of myself that's like really critical is like, maybe you shouldn't wear that bathing suit. And I can think of tough I'm going to wear. And then the wild, the little wild part of myself is like, yes, let's go dance. And then my highest self might say, that would be good for me. Let's go do that and see how it feels. But honestly, Erin, there have been times where I've been sort of having fun and being silly. And then I remind myself, oh my gosh, I am not drunk right now. Like I, I almost have that feeling of like, did I accidentally drink? <laughs> and, and I'm like, nope, just having fun. Just, just, and I just have like, so it, it comes back, I think. So Jean, how did you how do you how did you get in touch with that higher voice? Because that's not something that um, everybody's aware of for themselves. And and you actually have a, a a blog post that you wrote called "The Top Ten Things That Helped You Recover." And finding your higher voice wasn't on there in a top ten, but I bet if you looked at some of them and delved deeper that was absolutely one of the top 10 things that you needed to recover. And on that blog, you, you talk about, uh, about being critical of yourself. So you said, I can intellectualize that I'm overly critical on, of myself. I can understand the root causes of the criticism and identify the patterns of behaviors involved. And the real challenge for me is to do things differently moving forward. It's not as if I can just say, I am going to stop being so hard on myself. And boom, be gentle. It takes an effort towards awareness. So how did you grow that awareness? How did you find that higher voice? Well, first of all, let me say it's really cool to hear you read my blog post because I don't remember writing most of them. And I don't go back and read them typically. So, like, I sound really smart when you read my stuff. <laughs> you are really smart. I'll play the part of your higher voice right now. And say, yeah, Jane, you are smart. Thank you. <laughs> I write in my highest voice. I get to that point in my head, and it's almost like a meditation. And I like that. And I think I'm in a higher part of myself when I'm on this show, too, because I, I'm listening, and I'm in the zone, and I don't have a lot of distractions. So it's easy to go there when things are quiet and when we're thinking about being that kind of person. It's hard to be there when you're in the grocery store and you have cramps and your phone's (laughs) ringing and then you see your grade three teacher, you know, like it's hard to stay in it in the world, but it's easier to stay in it when we're writing. How did I find that higher voice? 150 bucks an hour, baby. Therapy. (laughs) Therapy got me there. Um, one of the first things she did was a little guided meditation. And she said, you know, I want you to close your eyes and there's a blue light inside of you and it's, it's really hidden and it's under a lot of layers. And I just want you to go there and find that light and just let it shine and just concentrate on making it bright, 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 bright. And that was one of the first things we did. And I just was able to go there so quickly. I knew, I, I don't, I still don't quite know what she meant, but I knew exactly what she meant, if that makes sense. That was a reminder to me that there was something inside of myself that had always been there, that I trusted and loved, 
and thought I had to hide and protect from the world and that recovery was going to mean bringing it out and letting it shine and that it would allow me to be fully me. And I'm not there yet, but I'm closer than I was before. And I envision myself as like this foxy 75-year-old with, you know, shoulder-length silver bob and killer eyebrows and a great wardrobe and finally able to do Bird of Paradise in yoga. (laughs) And that's like, that's my eyes are on that prize. That's that's who I want to be. I love it. I want to be with that silver fox on the dance floor when Michael Jackson comes on. Okay. So we'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to. Can it be that. Wham though? Can, Can it, it be, be like Wham? <laughs> That'll work. That totally okay. will work. So I know we're, we're running tight on time, but I, I have just, I have so many other questions, but there's two things I definitely want to touch on. And the first is you, you know, the guided meditation that you just described sounds incredible and, and was incredible. And I, one of the things that I used um, when I was embarking on sobriety is a book called The 30-Day Sobriety Solution. And the authors give a visualization exercise in that book. To boil it down, the exercise is to visualize your life five years from now if, you've stepped, if you kept drinking and visualize it if you have stopped drinking. And so okay. I'm wondering how, if you could visualize your life if you had not stopped drinking seven years ago, mm. what do you yeah. think that would look like? Whew. Um, well, uh, someone I know who's um, about seven years older than me, so she comes to mind. Um, someone I really looked up to when I was younger. And, um, and she has alcohol, uh, dementia caused by alcohol, wet brain syndrome. And um, she's in extended care. She needs help to eat, to, to go to the bathroom. She's, she will probably live, you know, another 30 or 40 years in this condition. And she should be golfing. She should be playing with her grandkids. And she doesn't know them. She doesn't recognize her own family when she sees them. So God forbid that's where any of us, including her, end up. That's where she is. That's where no one wants to go. That's where no one deserves to go. I don't know that that would have been me, but I can tell you I was very, very angry. And if I hadn't quit drinking, I wouldn't have been with my dad through his illness and death in the way that I was. And I would, I would probably not have the peace around that that I have. Um, I wouldn't have the closeness with my kids that I have because I would be hiding from them this part of my life that I wasn't proud of. And I wouldn't be able to, I would, I'm sure I would be as helpful as I am with my grandkids, but I wouldn't be able to enjoy them as much as I do because I would really be struggling to juggle the alcohol and them. And, you know, if my kids had found out how much I was drinking, they wouldn't be leaving those grandkids with me. So I don't like any of it. There's none of it that's good. None of it. When I think about it. Yeah. Well, I have so many more questions, but um, the one thing I, I did want to to make sure to to ask you to talk about a little bit is that is the theme song for the Bubble Hour, because I don't know that. Well, I certainly didn't know, and I had been a listener for many years, and I bet a lot of people don't know that the woman singing at the in that song is you. 
It is. <laughs> some some listeners is- will know this. I have talked about this twice on the show, but there are 200 episodes. So if you haven't memorized all 200 of them, I forgive you. Um, <laughs> but it is me. I, um, in 2007 and 2008, at the height of my doing too much ism. I, um, in addition to uh, running a company and owning a coffee house and doing a zillion different things, I recorded and released a couple of um, singer-songwriting albums. And they are available on iTunes or iMusic or, you know, they're they're out there. And um, when I joined the Bubble Hour, they didn't have any theme music. And I said, you know, I have this song that I wrote years ago and it's on this album and you can have it for the show if you want it. And Ellie and Amanda, who were running the show then, were like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you know, it's a good fit. And and so, yeah, we just threw it on there because we didn't have to pay for it. I didn't, you know, if you use other people's music, you need copyright and and um, you have to pay for it. And I was like, well, it's free. So go ahead. <laughs> go ahead and throw it on there. But yeah, so it me. is a good fit. It is a good fit. And I, I have been lucky enough to hear you sing it in person and it's awesome. So, okay. Last question. I promise. Last question. Of Who is the one person you would like to interview on the bubble hour? Um, well, it changes every day because every time I hear something, but lately it's Jan Arden. Do you know who Jan Arden is? I don't. I do not know. Oh. Okay. We have a lot of listeners in the, in the U.S. who don't know who she is. She's a Canadian singer-songwriter. She is hilarious. She's so funny. She's from my home province here of Alberta. She's from Calgary. And she's sober. And she's written books and she's written albums. And she's just so funny and so real. And I love her so much. And since I'm mentioning her, she just released a new album. And I cannot stop listening to a song called Not Your Little Girl. And yeah, just go... Just go search it right now and listen to it, and you'll just you'll you will enjoy it. Jan Arden, J A N M Arden. I will look that yeah. up, and I will I will I will look forward to hearing her here, where oh, you I will be interviewing that. her. <laughs> you will you will <laughs> reclaim the control the control board, and uh, and and I'm sure lead her through a great interview. So thank you so much, Jane, for letting me. Uh, lead you through this interview. It's all these questions that I've been wanting to ask you for all these years. I, I actually have literally, I don't know, eight more that I wish we had time for, but um, another time maybe. So thank you for allowing me to to ask you all my all the things I've always wanted to ask you. Ah, you're welcome. And listeners, I hope that um, you didn't find this too narcissistic of me. I hope this wasn't like an hour-long selfie. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> it's a little weird to me, but... <laughs> Okay, so now, Erin, what you have to do is you have to tell everyone the email address for the Bubble Hour. Okay, so you can you can um, read more about Jean's story on unpickled.com, and you can find more uh, Bubble Hour episodes on blogradio.com slash Bubble Hour. Is that the address we give them? Yeah, and my blog is unpickledblog.com. Unpickledblog.com. Yeah, uh, I will have to work on <laughs> ending the show properly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then you have to say, yes, but that's yes. it for now, everyone. And then you have to say, until next time, take, take good, good care. care. I own it, I did that, not proud that that was me and me.